We sang the song, Humble Thyself in the Sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. And part of that song reminded us of the fact that He is coming again. Israel is about to end its celebration of one of the feasts of Israel known as Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. It's called the Feast of Trumpets. We connect the dots with regard to the feasts of Israel and emphasize the fact that the Lord has fulfilled each of the feasts of the springtime feasts Four of them have indeed been fulfilled exactly on the day, even precisely at the hour of the day. Now, Jesus said very, very matter-of-factly, and it was a warning to anyone who would think otherwise, no man knows the day or the hour of his return. We do not attempt to make any prophetic statement with that regarding the time of his coming to take the church to be with himself. However, every year when I notice that we're in this season, which we are now in, and especially on the day that we now are here in this room, celebrating the Lord's wonderful grace and mercy to us, I can't help but reflect on the fact that Paul the Apostle tells us that there is coming a day when the Lord will appear in the clouds with His angels and a loud trumpet blast will be heard by those who follow Him and know Him as their personal Savior. It's not only in First Thessalonians chapter 4 that we read such of an event, but in First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul again tells us that we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet sound. Well, Israel, again, is closing up their celebration, and around 11 o'clock, our time, they're seven hours ahead of us, they'll end their festivities in Jerusalem at 6 o'clock p.m. with a trumpet blast. Well, we've got about a half an hour to wait. Wouldn't that be cool? It's not necessary for the Lord to do what I ask of Him. But I every year come to Him and say, Lord, perhaps this would be the right time. I have an expectancy of His return. It doesn't have to be on Rosh Hashanah. I'm not placing any bets. I'm just suggesting that this is a time of year when we should have that greater expectation of His fulfilling that which He has promised because it's going to happen eventually. We don't know the day or the hour or the year, but we do know the time is near. Because we're in the season that He spoke of as the last days. He's coming. And we need to be ready. So we need to humble ourselves. That's a great, great exhortation for the church in this last hour. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. We are to submit ourselves to Him in humility. And when we do so, you realize that we have an advantage over all of the enemies of God. The Bible tells us very clearly that if we submit ourselves and humble ourselves to Him, Satan will flee. 
We're told to resist the devil. And in order for us to do so, we need the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And He does dwell in us who believe, who are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, having received that gift of the Holy Spirit at the moment we were converted, when we said, God, help me, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. And He gives it. Repented, saved, redeemed, regenerated, born again. Those are words that we hold dear to our hearts. And it's especially important to me, I hope it is to you, that every one of us should live our lives out in these last days as though we really believe this. And the only way that I know of is to demonstrate that through how we live our lives before others. Well, the church began, as we have looked at the very first few chapters of the book of Acts, with a remarkable outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And things were going so, so very well. People were getting saved right and left. People were coming. I want to know how to be saved. And they were indeed seriously wanting to be saved. And the answer that Peter gave them when they requested how it is that they should be saved was a very simple answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But first there was a need for repentance. Recognition of the fact that you are indeed a sinner. That was necessary and it still is today. But that's the criteria that we need to emphasize with regard to salvation in this present hour. It has not changed. It is the same message. There needs to be repentance. There needs to be a willingness to accept the fact that we have been all of our lives without God and we need to draw close to Him in these last days. And the only way that we can do that is through His Son and what He has done on the cross. That's the Gospel message. That's the resurrection message that Peter was saying that is a very, very affirmation that God does save and has always saved through His Son. It's the only way for that salvation to be known by anyone. We've preached these things because we believe them. We've preached them because we know that the people all around us Relatives, friends, neighbors need to hear. We preach it because it's true. And I emphasize again, let God be true and every man a liar. Anyone who disagrees with this simple basic truth that the gospel of Jesus Christ is indeed available to all and it is a simple truth that He presents to us in this Word of God. What a remarkable thing that God has done for us. What an awesome God we serve. Well, that was again the message of the first century church. And people were thronging to to come into that fellowship. And things were going so very wonderfully well. Again, many people were getting saved. And Jerusalem was bustling with all that was going on. People were getting healed of their infirmities. Delivered. Redeemed. Blessed beyond measure. And they began to demonstrate their appreciation for what God had done for them 
in a very remarkable way. And so as we proceed in our study in the book of Acts, we find ourselves now near the end of chapter 4 where we left off the last time. We're going to begin reading in verse 32 of that great book of Acts, chapter 4, where it says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. You understand what that's saying? They were united over and over again. We saw as we read through the first few chapters of the book of Acts, that common ground that they all had, that commonality, that koinonia in their Greek language, that fellowship that they had, a unity, a oneness. They had a single-mindedness with regard to their faith in Christ and with regard to what He had done for them. And that resulted, again, in their being of one heart and one soul. They were tied at the hip, if you will, They were representing the body of Christ as it should be represented in the world. Fitly joined together, Paul tells us. That's what the body of Christ is to be. That's what we are to be in this present hour. May it be so. Then he goes on to say, And neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they all had things in common. Now that's an interesting statement as well. I will not suggest to you that what we are reading is the standard for our day. This is just what took place at the very beginning of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church as the church was founded and as it began to grow. They were in Jerusalem and it started to spread in other regions of Judea as well, as we will see later on. But the fact is they were in that city and there were needs because many of them, having turned to Jesus Christ, were rejected by their own families. Many of them lost their jobs. Many of them were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. Because in Jerusalem, the leadership of the people of the Hebrew nation centered in Jerusalem were very, very powerful men, and they had control over the religious system of the day. So... Those who had turned to Jesus Christ were soon found out and they were excommunicated. Even today, Orthodox Jewry is very, very strict with regard to their faith. And if any member of a Jewish family, that Orthodox Jewish family, turns to Jesus Christ today, he also or she would be excommunicated. They wouldn't even be recognized as part of the family anymore. In many cases, they conduct a funeral service on behalf of that one because in their eyes, that individual who was turned to Christ is no longer living, no longer a part of the family. Well, that was how it was back then in that first century church experience. It was a very costly thing to come to faith in Jesus Christ in the city of Jerusalem in that hour. And as a result, there was a persecution, there was a need for help. And so those who had property began to sell their property, and then it was distributed among the saints in an equitable sort of way. That's not something that lasted very long, but that's how it began. And that's what is being alluded to here in what we just read, that they had all things in common because... Anyone who had possessed anything, land or houses, didn't consider it to be his own anymore. They were willing to share what God had given to them with others who had little or nothing left. 
you might think that that's communism. Well, it would be communism in its purest form, but we've never known in our existence as a human race to see any government that uses a communistic philosophy to be one that would be beneficial to all. In fact, communism as we know it was a, is and was oppressive. And the reason for that is because those who were in control were the oppressors and they wanted to maintain that control and so they developed their system of communism so that everybody would be alike but yet the top tier was a little bit different. Socialism, communism are ideals that cannot exist whenever mankind is in control. Well, here we have not communism in that sense, but people were doing it because they wanted to. People were doing it because they really felt like it was part of who they were and they wanted to share with everybody. And it turned out to be quite a blessing for a short season of time. Reading on it tells us also there was something else that was very, very important that was happening in that early church setting. In verse 33, and we have it up on the wall in front of you, and with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Great power, great grace. Oh, how we need great power and great grace in the church today. It's available, but we need to submit ourselves humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. His amazing grace is definitely amazing grace. Do we take full advantage of what He has to offer? I don't believe we do. I don't believe that we're even scratching the surface of the grace of God in this present hour. I think there's so much more than God is, that God would be willing to do for us, to give to us, if we would just simply let Him by submitting ourselves to His authority by humbling ourselves in His sight and letting Him lift us up, praying together, working together on a daily basis, not just one hour on Sunday morning, but coming together whenever there is opportunity to minister to each and every one of us. That's what body ministry has always been intended to be. That's what we have focused our time and attention on throughout the time that we've been here at Safe Harbor Church. And I pray that that will continue to be an emphasis in every one of our hearts. And let the Lord, by His Spirit, give to us that which He desires to give. That strength, that courage, that ability, that great power that He speaks of here to do wonderful things on His behalf and the grace to endure whatever troubles may come our way, whatever difficulties, whatever trials, whatever discouragements we may have to deal with. Grace is available. Great grace. So we can walk above the circumstances instead of under the circumstances. That's what they were doing there. It was being a total blessing through the power of the Holy Spirit, to live for Jesus Christ in those days. So what happened? Before we get to that, the latter part of verse of uh, chapter 4 continues to says in verse 34, Nor was there anyone among them 
who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. So they took a great deal of responsibility upon themselves to make sure that everybody was taken care of in, in the church. Thousands of people had been coming to the Lord. There was a great ministry going on here and the apostles were very, very sincere and and the people were very, very sincere and everything was going so very, very smoothly. And now Luke gives us one individual about whom we will learn much more as we continue through the reading of the gospel of the book of Acts, the Lord willing. But this one individual is mentioned in the latter part of the chapter. It says in verse 35 or 36, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, he was a Levite of the country of Cyprus, and having sold land, or having land rather, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Luke gives us this one individual as an example of those who had done this. Barnabas was a Levite. It's interesting to note that Levites weren't allowed to possess land in Israel, but he's from Cyprus and he apparently had land or house or both in that region of the world. He came to Jerusalem. He's from a different location, but came to Jerusalem during the feast time. Apparently, either he got saved during that period of time when, when the Holy Spirit came on the church, or perhaps he was already a disciple Prior to that, and he came to Jerusalem, and when the Spirit came down, he, along with all of the other people that were saved, were totally convinced that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and it was all that they needed to do was to come by faith and accept that salvation that he had to offer. He had become a believer, a strong, committed believer. And again, the name Barnabas, which is Hebrew, Bar, son of encouragement. He was an encourager. Apparently, that's why they named him so. His original name was Joseph or Joseph, but he was again a Levite. It's interesting to note that there were many Levites who came to the Lord as a result of the things that had just transpired in the city of Jerusalem. Many Levites, many of the Pharisees, the scribes, also came to the Lord. He's just one of several. But he's done something that stands out. He sold his property and he gave every bit of it, the proceeds, for the purpose of helping others. And he's recognized here as having done so. Now, if we were to stop here, it would be a great thing to do. Because it seems like, oh, so many wonderful things are happening in the church, and the church has reached its point of perfection, and that's where we would love to stay. But Luke doesn't stay there. But before we go on to what Luke does have to share about this particular series of events, I just want to point out that as I read this portion and see that Barnabas was so generous that he gave everything. What a perfect time to teach on tithing. Don't you think? 
In the Old Testament, when Moses received the commandments from the Lord to build the tabernacle and all the associated things that needed to go along with that construction, there was need for silver, there was need for gold, there was need for cloth, there was need for wood and other materials, there was need for bronze. And and they just began, because the need was made known, they began to bring all of that which was needed to Moses. Until one day, Moses said, Stop! Don't bring any more! We don't need any more! I don't know of any church in America who has ever, ever taken that particular path. Except for this one. I'm just saying. I don't want any more of your money. I'm not getting it anyway, but the church doesn't need any more of your money. The church is doing fine. But that doesn't mean you should stop giving. That just means that we, when you give, we have more ability to share it with others. And so what comes in goes out to other ministries. We have great opportunity to give to various associations and people that are in the world doing a great work. And I'm glad that we can do that. We can support those missionary efforts because of your generosity. We can share the wealth that the Lord has brought into this very, very small ministry here in Salesport, Maine, to minister to individuals throughout the region. And we've done that. We've been blessed by that. We've been enabled to do so. And I pray that we'll continue to do more and more as the day approaches. So, I don't want you to really stop giving. That was said tongue-in-cheek. But we do not emphasize giving 10%. Notice that that's not emphasized here in this portion that we just read. He just gave everything. Peter didn't say, Oh no, Barnabas, you don't have to give that much. Just give... The tithe, Barnabas, that's enough. Or he didn't say, oh, stop giving everybody, we've got enough now. That didn't happen. The reason is, there was a need. But God was providing for that need. And God was in control of all that was being done. And I believe that that's still the case today. We do not require or emphasize tithing for this one reason. The Word of God in the New Testament tells us that God loves a cheerful giver. And if you can't give cheerfully, then you don't want to give. Because it's a contrary thing to give begrudgingly to God. So if you can't afford it, don't do it. If you can't afford it, but you don't really like doing it, then don't do it either. It's up to you to make that decision on what you want to give, when you want to give, and to whom you want to give your resources. But I just encourage you to consider that there is blessing in giving to the Lord, but do it with a cheerful heart. That's all I ask. I never ever will take a second offering because the first offering wasn't enough. I know of a church that did that in Bangor. It's still in existence today. But during the time when they were overweighted with a mortgage indebtedness, I was in a service there at that church where the pastor said, we're going to take an offering so that we can remove our indebtedness. They took an offering. That's in addition to the standard offering that they took. They sent the ushers out to count the money after that offering was made. 
the ushers came back and made known to the pastor how much was taken in. And he said, nope, that's not enough. We're going to take another offering. That service, service lasted several hours. And I sat through that service, watching, disgusted at what was happening, but stayed nonetheless for three times. And it still wasn't enough until finally, after he made a fourth appeal, a woman stood up and said, I've got this ring. I'm going to give it to the church. And it's enough to finish what needs to be done. Two problems with that. That should have never been done in the first place because God loves cheerful givers and He doesn't want that kind of scenario going on in the church to force people to give more. Second, that woman who stood up saying, I've got this much money and here it is for the church. God doesn't honor that either. The reason I brought that up is this. Chapter 5 begins with the word, but. I love the word but when it's attached to the word God. Because when I read but God, something good is going to happen. So whenever, whenever I come across a passage that says but God, I look at that and I say, all right, something really, really awesome is going to take place next. Even though something terrible had already taken place before that word, but now God is doing something. But God, that's always encouraging to me to read that in the Word of God. But when I see but without God, then I begin to wonder, oh no, what's happened? Something's wrong. Something was going good, and now the word but appears. Well, that's where we're at today in that particular passage beginning with verse 1 of chapter 5, where it says, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. Well, that's okay. Everybody was doing that. That's great. But read on. It says in verse 2, And he kept back part of the proceeds, and his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, again, what they were doing is they had a parcel of land and they sold it for a certain sum of money. They got together and said, you know what, Barnabas just gave all of that money to the church, but I don't really feel like we should give everything like he did, so let's just tell them that we sold the land for this much and give that amount to the church and we'll keep the rest for ourselves, kind of like a retirement fund, if you will. They were conceiving a lie because they're telling, or they will have told, Peter and all of the others, we sold our land for this much and here it is. So they were taking the accolade for a great thing that they had done. They sold their property. But they lied about the fact that they had sold it for a much larger sum than what they told the apostles they sold it for. So, it's no different than that woman taking that ring and, and making everybody know that this is how much I'm giving and putting it into the offering plate. Verse 3 says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart 
to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. Look at what he says again. Careful reading. Why has Satan filled your heart? The source of that decision came from Satan. Yes, Satan can influence decisions that we make. That doesn't mean that we should follow after those decisions just because we might have been misled by the enemy of our soul. That's a very real possibility that Satan can influence our decision-making process by some means, either through others or through our own flesh. But in some way, there is a way that we can be influenced by those thought processes that enter into our minds And that's what happened. Satan was a source. He's a father of lies. He's a deceiver. So why wouldn't he be involved in deception and lies in every heart that lets him do so? Secondly, not only has Satan filled his heart, but he's filled his heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Not to the church, Not to Peter, not to James, not to John, but to the Holy Spirit. That's important because he says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? You're in control of that. You don't have to worry about anybody condemning you if you wanted to say to us, I sold it for 100000 but I'm only giving 20000 or whatever the amount would be, if you were honest up front and were not trying to hide the truth to make yourself look better than you are, that's what Peter is complaining to Ananias about. He says, look, why have you done this? While it remained, was it not your own? And the latter part of verse 4, and after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? So now he's not saying Satan did it. You know, you can't go around saying, I sinned, but Satan made me do it. The devil made me do it. That's Flip Wilson's argument, but it's not true. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. You lied to the Holy Spirit. You've not lied to men. You've lied to God. Doesn't that mean then that the Holy Spirit is God? Yes, it does. You've not lied to men, but you've lied to God. That's pretty serious stuff. When you lie to men, your lie can be hidden for a season. I think last week we talked about lying as being a sin that's equally as wrong in God's eyes as any other sin. And it is. And here's an example of one who came and lied to God. Not only did he lie to Peter, that is true, but he lied to God. He misrepresented something before the people of God. And Peter's argument here is so very, very really strong as he makes this statement. You've not lied to men, but to God. And there's a response that you need to understand 
in this passage that we're about to read. The response isn't Ananias' response. The response is God's response. It tells us in verse 5 that Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. I should say so. But listen. God chose to do something here that he did that one time and as far as I know well it's only one other time that he does it which we'll read about momentarily but in that day that particular response of God was very very severe very very harsh but if you look back through the Old Testament scriptures take note of the fact that whenever God began a new thing God made sure that the people understood that this new thing is from God and it is something that he considers to be very, very important. Case in point. They built the tabernacle in the wilderness. Aaron was the high priest. He had four sons. His two oldest sons were ministering in that tabernacle. They were instructed to bring a certain incense, burning incense, into the holy place on a daily basis. The Word of God doesn't tell us exactly the details of what happened, but it does say that they brought strange fire into the holy place. God looked at that particular decision that they made and judged them for that terrible sin of misrepresenting him at the very beginning of the ministry in the tabernacle, he would have nothing to do with such arrogance on behalf of Levi's sons. And they both were killed by the Lord in the tabernacle when they brought strange fire. And you might think, well, that's pretty severe. And it was. God needed to make a particular point that he made very, very well. You shall never, ever do this. And they did not from that point on. It was at the beginning of something new. Later on, we find the people of Israel entering the land of Israel, Canaan. They've circled around the city of Jericho and the walls came down after seven days. Great, wonderful move of God in that great miraculous victory over their first city conquest while they were in the land. The next city was Ai. Ai was a much smaller city. And the men who were in the armies of Joshua came to Joshua and said, look, you don't have to send the whole army to Ai. It's a smaller city. Just send two or 3,000 men and we'll be able to take care of that little tiny place without any effort. And so Joshua said, yeah, okay, let's do that. Well, as it turned out, that two or 3,000 men were completely embarrassed because the men of Ai came charging down the hill after them and the Israelites were frightened. They lost 36 men in a battle they should never have even begun. So Joshua came to the Lord and said, What is going on here? Why did that happen? He's asking the Lord for instruction, for help. And God answered the sin in the camp. We've begun something new. We're entering into the land of Canaan. You're going to do it my way. You're going to do it the way I prescribe. And by doing that, what you just did in Ai, 
You could not have succeeded because I wasn't in it. But the reason that you were not, not able to is because while we were so victorious with Jericho, one of your men took of the spoils of that city. And Jericho was to be defeated and all the spoils of the city were to go to the Lord. It was a first, first, first fruits offering, if you will. And because one individual took some of that spoils, gold and silver and clothing, and hid it in his tent, God said, that's got to be dealt with. I will not give you victory if you allow that leaven to continue to leaven the whole lump. Ultimately, they found out who it was. Achan. Appropriate name. He was aching. (laughs) Because he was stoned to death. God's punishment at the beginning of something new was severe. It was needed to make sure that the people understood they've got to do it God's way. Later on in Israel's history, David wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. It was sitting under a tent still in Shiloh. And so David decided, let's get the people together, we'll have a great procession, and we'll take that Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem, and everybody will be so happy and proud. Well, they put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart that was drawn by a couple of oxen, and they were on the way from Silo to Jerusalem, and the cart was going over some rough road, and it began to tilt, and the Ark of the Covenant almost fell off the cart, and one poor guy decided, I can't let that fall. And he reached out to keep the ark from falling off the ark, uh, the, the ark of the covenant from falling off the ark, cart, and he was dead in a moment. That stopped the procession. David went to the Lord. What is going on? Why did this happen? Well, the reason for that is simple. They weren't doing it God's way. God had prescribed a particular method for moving the ark. It was only to be carried by the appropriate family of the Levites, and they were to carry it by poles stuck through holes in the ark table that was built for that purpose. They would carry the ark on those poles on their shoulders, and that was the method. David didn't really think about that at the beginning. And as a result, a man died. But God again was saying the same thing. Something new. The Ark of the Covenant was to be in Jerusalem, but it had to be done His way. And so it is here in this New Testament example. It had to be done God's way. Behold both the goodness and the severity of God. Paul tells us in the book of Romans. And this is a very severe thing. But it was needed to set the church on track. To get them to the point where they would understand that God means what He says. And He expects everyone to follow after what He has declared. So Ananias has died. Verse 6 says, And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. 
in that day, it was, and still true today, the burial is usually on the same day because it's a very hot climate and, and they didn't want the body to continue to rot, uh, decay, and expose open air. So they would do a quick burial. So the young men buried him. Verse 7 says, Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, and knowing not what had happened. So she apparently wasn't around at the beginning of all of this confrontation with Ananias. She wasn't made aware of his having dropped dead before the apostles' feet. She comes in, and as she arrives, Peter's made aware of her arrival. And apparently, she's invited to come before Peter. And it tells us in verse 8, And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. He gave her an opportunity to fess up. You see, you see what I'm saying? He, he gave her an opportunity to say, uh, well, that's what we intended, but I really can't go along with it anymore. I've, I really feel bad about saying that we sold it for this much when it actually was sold for this much. We had schemed together to, to, to kind of give the impression that we were being so very generous, but I know it's not right. So I, I, I really want to confess to you that that really was not the case. If she had done anything like that, she'd still been able to fellowship among the believers in that day. However, her response, yes, for so much, she stuck with the story. So Peter gave that opportunity for her and she didn't take it. So consequently, Peter, I believe by the Spirit of God, made this following statement in verse 9. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her with her husband. I wonder if they were thinking, how many times are we going to have to do this today? Hopefully that would be the end of it, right? And it was. What would it be like if it was still going on in the world today? People gathered in the church. Some great things are going on. And people are excited. And people come forward and they offer great amounts of money, laying it at the feet of the elders in the church. I don't, I don't ever see how much money is given, so I wouldn't want to be part of that. But you bring it to Richard. He's the treasurer. You would tell him, oh, wow, I was able to sell this land for $50,000, and now I'm giving it all to the church. And Richard will look at you and say, the Spirit of God just told me something that you need to understand. Why are you lying to the Spirit of God? I know that through His telling me that you held back 
a large sum of money. You sold it for much more than you did. And when you were told that, all of a sudden, we've got to deal with a dead body. Wouldn't that be interesting if we were like the church at its beginning? If we had the power that the church had at its beginning, if we were filled with the grace of God as the church was at the beginning, would we be responsible for things such as this in this present time? Would gold, would, would, would God rather hold us accountable as He did them? Quite frankly, I think the church gets away, people in the church get away with a lot. There's still sin in the camp. There's still people who are deceiving others. There are lies being propagated in the church. And it seems like God isn't doing anything about it anymore. I submit to you that every sin, every wrongdoing, every hurtful thing, whether it's being simply things that are said to others or about others, Everything is recorded by the Lord. We do not get away with any fault, whatever it may be. We may not be dropping dead as Ananias and Sapphira did, but there are consequences to sin nonetheless. God forgives all sin. It needs to be first confessed. And when we confess our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what the Word of God tells us. But we need to be honest with Him and with each other. And when we do sin, we need to deal with that sin. There are consequences to sin. Even when we confess our sins to God, yes, your sins are forgiven, but you may still have to suffer consequences for having done that which you have done. I think back again at David. David committed a great sin with Bathsheba. He also committed a great sin by having Bathsheba's husband, Uzziah, killed in battle. He was miserable all of that time that he had done that and realized how sinful he had become and cried out to God on more than one occasion until Nathan came to him one day, the prophet. And Nathan shared a story with David about a man who was a wealthy man and he wanted to share a party with some very, very important friends of his, but he didn't want to take one of his own lambs. He took the lamb of his neighbor to have it slaughtered, and then the feast began. Well, that lamb that was slaughtered was a very, very dear lamb to that man. He was nowhere near as wealthy as the other guy, and that lamb was special to him. It was taken from him. And as Nathan told the story... He asked David, what should be done to that man who did such a thing? And David's response was very, very quick. He should die for that terrible, terrible sin. And then Nathan responded, bravely responded, David, 
you are the man. As a result of that confrontation by Nathan, that David wrote Psalm 51, beautiful psalm of repentance, beautiful psalm of confession, beautiful psalm of dependence on a loving God who forgives. But there were consequences to that sin. Yes, he was forgiven. But from that time on, David did not have the great ministry that he once had as a king of Israel. He had issues with his family. He had issues with the people groups around him coming against him constantly. He had problems within his own administration and people in his own family turned against him. Those were the consequences of his sin. God still does make sure that when we sin, we have consequences. Do that. The point of all of this is this. God wants His church to be perfect. But God knows His church is not perfect. So how do we deal with that? One thing that I know is that the Spirit of God is needed in order for us to enter into a place where we can say, My God is a God who pours out His grace upon His church in spite of our terrible sin because He loves us and He wants the very best for us. And I believe that to be so today as it was back then. So examples are given. Severe punishment is meted out when it's needed. But the bottom line is that God's love prevails. And the Apostle Paul knew that. And whenever he wrote to those churches who were not perfect, whatever church that might have been, whether it were Corinth or Ephesus, or Rome, or the churches in Galatia, or the Philippian church. He always emphasized the fact that God has done great and wonderful things on your behalf, and this is what you are responsible to do in, in response to what God has done. We have obligation. And what Paul is saying is, if we are willing to respond to God's grace in a proper way, He will bless. He will strengthen. He will pour out His Spirit. He will move among you. It was Paul's desire that every church that he ministered in would understand these things. And that understanding these things, they would do what he recommended for them to do in every situation. Because it was His desire, it's my desire, it's the desire of every faithful pastor known among the churches today. It is our desire that the church that we are responsible for be presented to God as a chaste virgin, Paul says. Without blemish, spotless, like a sacrificial lamb needed to be spotless before the Lord in order to be sacrificed unto Him. So is it 
that the church needs to be without blemish as well. Not that we're going to be offered up as a sacrifice, but because we are His perfect bride. Again, great fear, verse 11 says, came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. I wonder, is this reading today that we've looked at enough to cause a sense of fear of God in our hearts? I hope that you understand what that word fear really means. Because it's not a fear that God is going to judge me. His judgment came upon His own Son. His judgment fell on Jesus at the cross. He's not going to judge the church except that the great judgment that is coming for the church Not the great white throne judgment, that's a separate judgment for the unbeliever, but the great judgment of the church is known as the Bema Seat judgment, which is a judgment of the church to administer rewards or not to those who are faithful children of God. That's you and me if our faith is in Him, if we receive Christ as our Savior, if our names are written in the book of life, if we are totally, fully aware of the grace of God in our lives to save us and to deliver us. We're there for that one purpose. Not for salvation. We've already gotten saved, but there for a reward in that time of judgment. Christ rejectors have a different judgment that they will be involved with. That great white throne judgment that's revealed to us in the book of Revelation is a judgment against those who rejected Christ. And that judgment is going to be a judgment to show that they cannot enter into God's presence. They will not receive any reward. They will receive eternal punishment. Don't want to be there. Hope you don't either. There's only one way not to be. Accept what Christ has done for you. Believe the Word of God. There's no guarantee that we'll live out this day. I'm mindful of the fact that just yesterday, during the storm, here in Searsport, A 50-year-old man was driving his car down Route 1. As he was passing through the town, a branch of a large tree fell on his car. Power lines fell with it. They couldn't extract the man until Central Maine Power Company came to shut the power down on those lines. The man was brought to the hospital in Belfast. He died. Fifty-year-old man. On his way to some location that only perhaps he knew. Perhaps he was on his way home to his loving family, to his wife, to his children. He never made it. None of us knows how much we have time left. Could be today. 
could be tomorrow that the Lord chooses to take us. But this one thing is certain. From the Word of God, it's appointed unto all men once to die and then the judgment. In that day about which we just read, it was a day for Ananias and Sapphira to breathe their last. They didn't know that that was going to happen. They thought everything was going to just work out fine. They believed that they could get away with what they were doing and receive some accolade like Barnabas had done. They were wrong. I wonder, is there anyone here who thinks we can get away with whatever we please and God will do nothing about it? I submit to you, don't take that risk. If there's nothing else that we leave this place with but this, let it be that we have a fear of God, respect for His authority over our lives. Psalm 134 was read this morning. Behold how good and how pleasant it is It says, Behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, which by night stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Those words are an invitation for the children of God to worship their God, to honor their God. to serve their God. That invitation is an open invitation to all. So let us not leave this place today until we do that which he recommends in this very wonderful psalm. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. He is the giver of life. He is the one who sustains He is the one who is to be praised, who pours out His grace and His mercy upon all who put their trust in Him. He is the one who enables us with the empowerment from His Holy Spirit to serve Him, to worship Him, to do His will. He is the one who is worthy of praise. Let us not leave this place without having done so. And let us be careful, never, ever, to lie to His Holy Spirit. Let us never, ever, misrepresent ourselves before others. Let us never, ever, deceive others into thinking we're better than we are. 